Good afternoon. It's Friday the 20th of May 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Vanessa Beely. Uh, well, I will uh, get straight on here with uh, Hugh Pill, who's uh, the chief economist from the Bank of England, talking about inflation uh, in the last day or so. Uh, on Wednesday, we learned that UK consumer price inflation currently stands at 9%. He said the Monetary Policy Committee forecasts that it will rise to double digits in the fourth quarter of this year. Well, if you didn't see David's coverage of this on Monday, Monday's programme, I suggest you uh, go and have a look at that because uh, whether we the Monetary Policy Committee's forecasts have any credibility or not is very much in question. He said, for a monetary policy maker charged with achieving an inflation target of 2%, this is obviously a very uncomfortable situation. Uh, monetary policy has been a supportive mode, sorry, has been in supportive mode uh, since 2008, but inflation and a tighter labour market are contributing towards the need to transition. Um, so we're heading into transition, he says, in terms of monetary policy. The further increase of the bank rate to 1% should be seen as part of this transition process, but it's not the end of the transition. In my view, we still have some way to go in our monetary policy tightening in order to make the return uh, of inflation to target secure. Well, this again is delusional because inflation, I think uh, most people uh, with any sense agree, is out of control. And uh, the key problem is the money printing, as David was talking about on Monday. Um, and uh, of course, the Bank of England uh, says there is no end to the potential for quantitative easing and therefore money printing. So uh, don't worry, uh, it's all going to get very unpleasant in the not too distant future. But it's not because of Russia or Ukraine. It's because of the policy of the Bank of England, uh, not the policy that they're making now, but the policy that they've been making since 2018 and for actually a couple of decades before that as well. So um, that's that. And, and we're just supposed to sit there and take it while Hugh Pill and his mates advise us. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. OK, let's move on then to health issues. And uh, well, I wanted to highlight this uh, from uh, uh, Egil Talk. And uh, this is the following on from what Debbie was talking about on Wednesday with respect to the World Health Assembly. Um, so this uh, headline is entitled The Far-Reaching U.S. Proposals to Amend the International Health Regulations at the upcoming 75th World Health Assembly, a call for attention. Um, so I do recommend everybody read this in full. It's a long article. There's a lot to get through there. But I wanted to mainly highlight uh, this website, the uh, Health Freedom Defense Fund. Uh, and uh, they have issued World Freedom Declaration on this issue. So let's just run through what this says. We, the undersigned, oppose the proposed amendments to the World Health, sorry, to the World Health Organization's existing 2005 international health regulations and stand in support of all people's fight, uh, right to health, sovereignty and self-determination. The United States proposed amendments to the IHR are set to be considered at the 75th World Health Assembly, which brings on, uh, which begins on the 22nd of May 2022. The proposed amendments, however, create an ambiguity relating to the date they become effective, as the proposed amendments expressly state they will become effective six months after the date of ratification by the Director General whereas the existing IFR uh, provides the amendments become effective 18 months after the notification by the Director General. If accepted, if accepted these legally binding amendments uh, would come into effect for all member states except those who explicitly reject them. We'll be coming on to that a little bit in a second. Uh, under Article 59 of the IHR, de facto approval is assumed for any member state that fail, fails to reject or take reservation to the amendments. Um, and uh, so there's quite a bit more 
to this, and I suggest that people uh, read it. But uh, in summary, then, the IHR amendments would, amongst other changes, intensify the surveillance of all countries and their citizens, grant the World Health Organization the authority to tell other member states when one member state isn't reporting and launch punitive actions, empower the World Health Organization Director General to declare when and where a pandemic or alleged emergency is occurring under undeclosed sources, sorry, using undeclosed sources, uh, confer unrestricted powers to the Director General to define and implement interventions, and give the World Health Organization the ability to access and mobilize capital in the event of a pandemic. Uh, and they say that this power grab by the World Health Organization, its donors and stakeholders, represents a direct attack on the political and economic sovereignty of all nations and its citizens. And we are seeing nothing about it in uh, wider media is the key. Yes. Um, so uh, maybe I could say welcome to Vanessa. At this point, uh, any thoughts on this? Well, no, I mean, except that the, the entire global health tyranny is moving forward fairly rapidly now. And so anything that is highlighting this should be uh, shared everywhere and people should be making a real fuss about this. Yes. OK, well, let's uh, just briefly mention uh, the latest uh, advice from the uh, uh, JCBI, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization in the UK with respect to the Autumn Bo Booster pro uh, Program. I'm not going to read this in total. People can uh, read this as we go through. Uh, but the point here is that they are saying that uh, uh, the vaccine, the booster vaccine should be offered to residents in care homes, uh, frontline health and social care workers, uh, those aged 65 and over, and adults aged 16 to 64 who are at a clinical risk, uh, sorry, in a clinical risk risk group. So the point here, Brian, is that they are not at this point saying uh, that it should be uh, a global uh, booster program as it has been up until now. Now, this is advice from the uh, JCVI and whether that's actually taken at the end of the day um, by the government, by the uh, chief medical officers and the MHRA and so on. Well, we have to wait and see. We do have to wait and see, uh, but as we will be discussing a little bit later, of course, nobody is talking about vaccine adverse reactions, uh, which is a critical part of making an informed decision. Do you know what the benefits are? If any, do you know what the risks are? And to date, the, uh, all of the authorities, including the government responsible for public health safety simply refuse to discuss the risks. Um, so uh, RT uh, has pushed out this headline uh, saying Russia moves to withdraw from the World Trade Organization and the World Health Organization. And now, of course, uh, people in the UK can't read what it says here because uh, RT is banned in this country. Uh, but they quote uh, uh, Peter uh, Tolstoy, the deputy speaker of the Russian parliament, saying the Ministry of Foreign Affairs sent a list of such agreements talking about the World Trade Organization, World Health Organization to the State Duma. And together with the Feder Federation Council, that's the Russian Senate, uh, we're planning to evaluate them and propose to withdraw from them. Uh, so, Vanessa, this is, if it goes ahead, is a, is a major step. Um, and uh, bearing in mind what the World Health Organization is doing at the moment with its uh, global treaty and, and the various other amendments that it's trying to push through at the moment. Uh, yeah. The question is, is this, is this totally related to sanctions or are they concerned about that, do you think? Well, I mean, no, that's impossible to, to speculate on now because there's no reference, of course, to the WHO treaty. But the fact that the, it's the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, so that is Lavrov and uh, Zaharova, etc., 
have sent this recommendation to withdraw from international treaties and collaborations. And Tolstoy actually, who's the vice speaker of the State Duma, um, informed Interfax, the Russian, um, one of the Russian state media outlets, he said there is work to be done to revise our international obligations and treaties, which today are no longer beneficial, but directly damage our country. Now, in that statement, there is a fairly strong message, which is, okay, you could relate it to sanctions, particularly with um, the World Trade Organization, for example, because they have announced that, that what they're doing is illegal via the sanctions. But for the WHO, if that's included in that statement, then, then that's a pretty strong statement. People have been pushing back with the fact that Lavrov um, called Tedros uh, at the WHO and was ostensibly um, talking about collaboration, etc. But, you know, that's fairly normal in diplomacy. I mean, he's not going to ring Tedros up and say, by the way, we're thinking of, of withdrawing from the WHO altogether. You know, he will maintain correct relations until the point at which uh, this recommendation is accepted and, and made constitutional. Uh, yes. Uh, have they given any indications that you're aware of about timescales? No, none at all. I haven't seen any follow-up since that uh, headline. Okay, cool. Well, we'll wait and see. Um, but uh, don't worry, the British government keeps the propaganda up because they were pushing this out on the uh, Foreign Office's Twitter feed on this. I think it was on Liz Truss's. I think it was on the Ministry of Defence as well, Twitter feed. Uh, so the Kremlin claim, they say, is that uh, Russia claims that its actions have in no way influenced global food insecurity. And they're quoting uh, Sergei Lavrov there, they claim. Uh, the facts, however, uh, according to the UK government, are that uh, Russia's military is blockading key ports in Ukraine, including Odessa. Unless reopened, Ukrainian farmers will struggle to export or store their harvest. And they quote uh, David Beasley from the World Food Programme as saying hundreds of million people Millions of people globally depend on these supplies. Well, this is disingenuous for a host of different reasons. First of all, David Beasley, of course, didn't make that quote in the context of Ukraine or Russia's actions or anything like that. So to suggest the, the, the implication is here that he did. Uh, and that, so that's uh, disingenuous. But let's uh, put our version of the same uh, graphic on screen um, because the UK government's claim, of course, is it's Russia food. It's Russia's fault, sorry, that we're uh, going to uh, be uh, short of food and food prices are going to go through the roof. Uh, the fact is that in the meantime in the UK and in the EU, and so the same policy across the West, the UK government is shutting down UK agriculture through rewilding re schemes and encouraging farmers uh, to leave the industry. Um, so that's what's going on. And uh, Russia, of course, can't be blamed for that. So that's not Russia's fault. Um, but don't worry, we're going to blame they'll, them anyway. They'll find a way. Yes. Um, uh, but uh, I just wanted to end this segment with this. Uh, Russian agriculture enjoys another year of growth in 2020. And, you know, the, the key point here, Brian, is that while the UK and other Western governments are shutting down their food uh, production uh, because of ostensibly global warming, Russia has actually reinvigorated its agriculture in the last uh, few years. And so one of the reasons that Russia has been a net exporter is because Putin took the, the strategic decision yeah. that farming was kind of important and perhaps they should be doing a lot more of it than they were. Uh, we're good, we are doing a lot less of it than we were and that is the direction of travel in our case. Um, so 
you know, perhaps you could say that this is a, a function of globalization, but at the end of the day, it's policy because, um, and sorry to use the pun, but the, the uh, Western governments have decided to put all their eggs in one basket and they're, they're attempting to get grain from one source instead of diversifying uh, you know, production. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And of course, globalization is all about uh, collaboration and net, networked production. Um, so what, what Russia is doing here is breaking away from that because they're supporting the national interests. And I suspect that's got a strategic element to it in that the Russians have been extremely worried about the situation, world situation, the European situation for some, some time. So they've been reinvesting in Russia. And of course, to be able to produce your own food is an important thing. And by a, a small coincidence this morning, um, I'm going to say straight away, I don't make a habit of buying the Telegraph, but I did have an old Telegraph in my car. And uh, this was the headline. It was at the bottom of the front page. And this was Friday, the 11th of March. Russia's economy on the brink of bankruptcy. Apparently, Russia is facing effective bankruptcy as soon as Wednesday after the World Bank warned that sanctions had left the Kremlin mighty close to a default on its foreign debts. Uh, Carmen Reinhardt, chief economist at the World Bank, said Russia and Belarus we're now in default territory with payments on 40 billion of Moscow's external bonds at risk. Analysts fear the country will fail to make the $117 million uh, coupon payment on the sovereign euro bond next week. So did that I... Aged well. Well, did, did, did I miss something? Did, did they go bankrupt? No. 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 What more can we say? We, we don't need to say any more. Yeah. Okay. Look, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, uh, or you could help us out via the UK column shop. Uh, but uh, in any case, please do uh, share any material that you find on the various platforms. Um, I just want to uh, mention uh, this uh, particular event that's taking place. Uh, this is being run by Panda, who've done uh, a lot of excellent work over the course of the pandemic to highlight. Uh, the issues around that. Uh, and so uh, this is Nick Hudson live in conversation with Jeffrey Peel. Uh, this is a unique opportunity, they say, to be part of a live presentation by Nick Hudson, chairman of Panda in a prestigious venue in London. Uh, his presentation is going to be called The Quest for Open Science. It argues that the need for discussion, debate and open science in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and will provide food for thought for a curious, grounded and rational minded audience. Uh, the presentation will be followed by an in-depth conversation hosted by the New Era's uh, Jeffrey Peel about the aftermath of the pandemic response and a live Q&A with the audience. Um, so that's taking place uh, uh, on the uh, 26th of May and the details uh, on Eventbrite if you have a search for the Quest for Open Science and Panda. Uh, so do get along to that if you possibly can. Uh, and then uh, a reminder once again about the Better Way conference taking place. Well, it's beginning today, but uh, over the weekend as well. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, virtual tickets, uh, I believe, are still available for that. Yes. And I've just stand here that uh, it is so important that people are standing up to be counted, speaking out and doing things. And if there's a group of people involved, and there's quite a substantial group in this case, we may not agree with everything each and every one of them says, uh, but the point is that we have got people now challenging the system. So encourage people to have a look at uh, what Better Way Conference is doing. 
and think about that. You may not agree with everything that's being said, but are these people doing good work? Yes, they are, and we need more people to stand up. And on that note, uh, today I was given a heads up that we have a really excellent group of people working to support people who have suffered COVID vaccine injuries. This is UK CV family. Uh, you can go to their website, obviously, to get the full details. Uh, but of course, what do we see straight away that they're connecting with the, the real people that have been uh, injured as a result of vaccinations? Um, this is the second uh, uh, introductory page, supporting each other. It says the UK CV family started as a way for us to support each other while learning how to navigate the changes we'd encountered to our bodies due to our COVID-19 vaccine injuries. We're a safe place, free from political agendas with a family of members from across the UK. So that's uh, pretty straightforward. There's some articles already pinned up on this very, very new website. Uh, and uh, they're particularly interested in promoting a video, which we're going to show you a little clip from in a minute. Uh, but uh, the second one there, what next? Managing your injury, research, what our data tells us, advocacy, UK CVs, families, recent correspondence. So this, I think, is a really excellent website. And of course, it's had to come into being because of the sheer number of people experiencing vaccine injuries. So we've taken, uh, we've spent a little bit of time this morning to just take a little clip from their video. So this is produced by the UK column. Please watch the, uh, the full video, which you can find online as it's really moving. But uh, let's see what the clip shows us. The scale of this vaccine nightmare is now such that the number of vaccine damage cases exceeds all cases arising from previous vaccine programs. Hi folks, I'm here at St Thomas's where I've just had my first AstraZeneca vaccine and I quite literally, I did not feel the thing and I cannot stress how important it is for everybody to get their vaccination. Get your jab when you're asked to do so. It, it's good for you, it's good for your family, and it's, it's a great thing for the whole country. So please get your jab. Thanks very much. Please, please, please get out there and get the jab. If you can be vaccinated and you refuse to, that's a selfish act. You're uh, putting other people's lives and health at risk. March I had the vaccine, three or four weeks later I had the blood clot and I just totally deteriorated from then on. I, I, I took it because I, I, I was doing build works for um, disabled, external disabled lifts and I thought well if I'm going to be working with these people, as they said, I'd be safer off having the vaccine. Came back and it was a blood clot. So he put me on blood thinners then up until August last year. Um, for a couple of weeks couldn't walk, uh, very painful. Then the next, over the next two or three weeks, I couldn't. Mm. 
Ist da noch ein Zogen? Sweating pints in the nights, problems talking. Couldn't remember things. I was making phone calls, forgotten I'd done them. Completely thought I was going mad. Everything. So on the 15th of August 2021, I had my second Pfizer vaccine. Um, within 20 minutes, I developed palpitations and I was driving at the time. So this was, you know, I thought I had to pull over. I was going to go on the motorway and I had to pull over on the, on the slip road, luckily, because I was about to pass out and I, I phoned my parents. I didn't want to phone an ambulance or anything like that. I'm not that dramatic. So that's what happened and happened on the way home and it happened again when I was sitting at the kitchen table. And quite surprisingly, within an hour of having the vaccine, I developed a really swollen, sore gland, right? you know, under my arm. So that shows a, a really quick reaction and I developed muscle aches, headache, fever, all of that, all the normal stuff. I developed severe chest pain and it was absolutely, it was stabbing chest pain. It was all across my chest. So no ifs or buts there, Mike. Um, there's, there's uh, what, what do we call this, personal evidence coming out here. It's irrefutable as to what's happened with these people. So I'm going to encourage our audience to have a look at that site. Please see the video and uh, please give support. And also to say this is one of the reasons why if you're not vaccinated, then we need to be um, very supportive of people who have had the vaccination because they were led down the garden path and they're now many of them in very, very bad situations. Vanessa, I don't know whether you'd like to just briefly comment on that one. I mean, it's so distressing to see the firsthand, the fallout from this really genocidal campaign. You know, I don't know of any other way to describe it. How many hundreds of thousands of people globally have been affected in this way? These are only the few that are coming forward. Um, thank God for initiatives like this, actually giving them a safe space to, to come into and to talk about what's happened to them. Because the sense of isolation must also be unbelievably distressing because, as you said, the government, the media, the medical community is simply ignoring them. Indeed. Uh, we'll just say uh, we'd also well, once again like to thank Sir Christopher Choke for his uh, efforts in Parliament and elsewhere in taking a lead to speak out about what's happening. And of course, we're, as always, we're going to encourage people to get the facts to your own MPs and ask them why they are not now starting to investigate what's happening. Uh, another article here from the excellent article from the Conservative uh, woman. Um, airline pilots unite to highlight vaccine injuries. This, of course, gets you thinking in lots of different ways. Are we safe in air travel? That lady had a problem in her car after a vaccine. Does this mean we're going to get problems with pilots during a flight? And the answer is that's what the evidence is showing. Uh, so if you have a look into this, this is some of the airlines uh, where we now know that vaccine adverse reaction problems have taken place, and that's quite a list. And uh, also, uh, there's a call for action here to try and get people to come together in the industry in order to get a full investigation going and a stop to the vaccination programme. So I encourage you to go and have a look at the uh, 
conservative woman for that article. Now, let's uh, switch over to uh, Ukraine and uh, the BBC. The BBC, Mike, I think is in deep trouble because I took this screenshot uh, just a, a little bit before we went live for today's news. So here's the headline, live Russia uh, Russia troops advancing in Luhansk as East Ukraine under fire. Ukraine's military says Russia is intensifying its bombardment of the wider Donbass region. So the Russians are advancing and the BBC says it very clearly. However, immediately underneath, you may have missed it, it says this. In maps, Russian momentum slows in the east. Oh dear. How is that possible? Well, it's possible, Mike, because, of course, what the BBC have been doing over at least the last week is absolutely lying by admission that the Russians have been making advances. They've been capturing towns. So the reality has been suppressed for the BBC. It's now got to the state where they have to report it. But, of course, they've forgotten to clear up their own nonsense from previous days. So I'm just going to overlay this by saying that it's clear that the BBC propaganda is now misleading the BBC because they believe their own propaganda. Where should you go to find out about what's happening? Now, I've mentioned this site before. It's Defence Politics Asia. Uh, the man who does the analysis of the maps uh, is from Singapore. He clearly has military experience. He talks about being in the army. He is extremely observant. He's looking at the detail of what's going on. Uh, however, you must always check yourself to uh, see whether you're convinced by the analysis being put forward. But my point is that if we go back and look, about, uh, look at his analysis over several days, uh, Russian forces capture has been, has been the common theme. None of this, none of it has appeared in the BBC even though the BBC is now talking about having sort of 20 journalists on the spot in Ukraine. So BBC simply not credible. But if you go to these video clips, which uh, you can easily find on YouTube, uh, then each one about 45 minutes long, giving specific detail with the maps and explaining how the maps have been drawn and uh, where the evidence is, for example, for the capture of a city. So this one here is Russian forces captured uh, Novoselivka uh, and uh, gives details of other fighting. But what I wanted to point out on screen is you can see straight above that subheadline uh, there is a blue circle which is encircled uh, Ukrainian forces. And if we carry it on through, these are the uh, clips taken out of longer. Uh, analysis, 45 minutes of each of the areas on the front. And when we hear the BBC boasting that the Ukrainians um, around Kharkiv of, uh, have been uh, reaching the Russian border, well, of course, the BBC is not giving the truth about that. This gentleman calls it Ukraine's unhappy front uh, because what has actually been happening is the Russians have been counterattacking and recapturing territory. But of course, the BBC doesn't want to use the word recapture. It doesn't want to use the word surrender when it's talking about Ukraine. So I'd encourage you to go and have a look at these, uh, these video clips. And you might also like to go and have a look at the Duran. Uh, a gentleman called Alex Mercurius is giving some really good daily analysis. Uh, we've also got South Front uh, that uh, Patrick Henningsen has mentioned uh, we have Moon of Alabama, 
and we also have the Dryzen report. So look at a selection, but one thing we can be sure of, it's pointless watching the BBC or reading their uh, deliberately misleading reports. Um, so Vanessa, let's move on to the issue of torture. And you've published an article on your Substack uh, headlined uh, Torture in Ukraine, harrowing testimony from journalist Laura Brayard. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to add something quickly to that BBC <laughs> lying by omission, because also what they don't mention is that the Donetsk or People's Republic forces are heavily involved in the recapture of the cities in eastern Ukraine as well. And of course, they're being disappeared because they have disappeared the eight-year genocide of uh, yeah. Donetsk and Luhansk. So that's an important point to make. It's not only Russian forces that are advancing. But yeah, I mean, coming to this, this was um, an interview with Laurent Dreyer, uh, which was made by Stratpol, which clearly states it is Russian media. It emphasizes that uh, it will condemn atrocities on both sides of the conflict. So it's taking clearly a very sort of objective view of, of the conflict. But this is, uh, I mean, this is a very simple interview with, with Laurent Breyer, who has been in the Donbass area since 2014 until 2016, um, totally self-funded. He left his family because uh, he was so horrified after the um, American-UK orchestrated coup in 2014, the Odessa massacre and the Mariupol massacre, which he reminds people of in this interview. Um, so I don't know if you want to, he's speaking in French, there are English subtitles, but I can summarize what he says after the video. But I just want to draw people's attention to his expression. And Brian, I think you'll pick up on, on the fact that he is totally haunted by what he has heard from civilian survivors of Nazi and fascist torture in areas like Mariupol, Donbass, Kharkov, etc. Okay, let's let's look at this first one then. Une usine qui a été transformée en prison. Ils ont décidé qu'elle était espionne, elle a été euh, donc torturée. Mais alors torturée, euh, on parle ici de tortures euh, qui sont égales à celles que la Gestapo a infligées aux résistants français ou à d'autres dans l'Europe de la Seconde Guerre mondiale. Donc ils lui ont euh, arraché les ongles, euh, cassé les dents et battu, et ils lui ont aussi euh, injecté des produits euh, dans le corps. Jusqu'à présent, elle ne savait pas trop quoi, mais elle a passé 20 jours non nourrie, battue. Ensuite, elle a été trimballée dans cette prison avec d'autres personnes. Dans cette prison, c'est le témoignage le plus dur que j'ai entendu, enfin, déjà parce que c'était une femme. Mmh. Euh, et puis que ça pouvait être ma femme, elle avait à peu près mon âge. Et elle, ce qu'elle a vu, donc non seulement elle m'a raconté pendant 3 heures les tortures qu'elle a subies, Et en plus, dans cette prison, elle a vu ce qu'il y avait autour. Donc, elle a parlé d'une sniper du Donbass qui était allongée sur un lit, attachée et qui servait d'objet sexuel à toute la compagnie. Mmh. Et qui, pendant des jours, appelait sa maman et qui appelait même à ce qu'on l'achève. Donc, elle a, elle, a, elle a vécu dans cette ambiance. Euh, elle a été dans des cellules où euh, il y avait des traces de sang au mur. Il y avait des exécutions. Elle a aussi entendu des exécutions. Ils ont fait semblant de les écouter, elle et d'autres, à de nombreuses reprises, dans des, dans des mascarades où on les aligne au mur, on charge les armes et ils croient que c'est leur est venu. Alors quand vous avez des traces de cervelle et de sang au mur, vous pouvez penser que votre heure effectivement est arrivée. 
pour les briser psychologiquement. Donc euh, suite à... ça a duré 20 jours. Donc on imagine comme le temps est très long, sans être quasiment nourri, hein, sans prendre de douche ni rien du tout. Enfin, non, ouais. non. Alors vous imaginez quand vous, vous arrachez les ongles, quand vous n'avez plus de douche. Yeah, that, yeah, that's quite shocking, um, Vanessa. Yeah, I mean, for those that, that couldn't see or couldn't read the subtitles, basically, he's talking about um, one female survivor uh, who went through 20 days of torture. He likens it to the Gestapo type torture, the pulling out of nails, the pulling of teeth, the breaking of teeth, um, the lack of food, the lack of showering, uh, the lack of amenities. Uh, being prevented from sleeping, um, mock executions with uh, traces of blood and brain from previous executions on the wall against which they're made to stand, uh, rape of a Donbass female sniper who was tied to the table and effectively uh, raped multiple times by the members of the group. And he goes on to describe that these are not only the Azov Battalion, they are various uh, Nazi and ultranationalist brigades, the ones that have been waging this war against Donetsk and Lugansk for the last eight years, since 2014. Um, he talks about the huge numbers of uh, both civilian and, if you like, resistance captives that have been tortured or disappeared um, in the thousands, particularly in Mariupol. In Mariupol itself, He talks about mass graves, which, of course, is ironic when you have the BBC claiming mass graves in Mariupol um, from satellite images, which Eva Bartlett, as I said before, debunked um, as standard graves for people that had died through the, through the conflict or simply from old age. They were well-marked uh, graves. But the, the real mass graves, if you like, um, have been um, uh, produced since 2014 by these monstrous battalions, of course, trained and equipped by uh, NATO member states. He also mentions the fact that uh, one of the uh, survivors talked about the fact that his torturers um, were English speaking. Now, he couldn't, he, he said quite clearly, the person obviously couldn't um, define from which country they were or which part of, of England, but they only spoke English. And this was back in 2014. So this, to me, suggests that not only were they training the Azov brigades in military um, expertise, but also in torture. Very similar, as he said, to Guantanamo. Um, a priest was also captured. Um, he was waterboarded. He was suspended by his hands and beaten severely across his body. Uh, Brea talks about uh, some of the satanic rituals that were found, um, particularly on the phones of captured Azov Brigade uh, soldiers, um, the building of huge pyres, the, the, the kind of the pagan and satanic um, rituals, as I said. So Satanism is clearly a thread that runs through this, very similar to, to um, the terrorists and mercenaries in Syria, by the way. Um, he also, and I think this for me is, is perhaps, maybe I shouldn't say shocking, but, but certainly for me one of the most criminal aspects of his testimony. He claims that both the UN and Red Cross actually carried out interviews with the same people that he did. He only achieved around 15, 16 interviews. According to him, 
the Red Cross carried out hundreds of interviews of these survivors. So they would have exactly the same testimony as would uh, the UN. At one point, one of the survivors he spoke to said that when the Red Cross came to visit, the Azov Brigade hid them all in the basement and showed the Red Cross the, the empty cells, but the Red Cross didn't ask to go any further. Um, so this is a clear cover-up. He, he names one of the Red Cross... Well, well, hold on, Vanessa. Just before you talk about the Red Cross, let's just watch, let's just watch a little mm. bit of the video on that. Uh, so let's watch uh, the, mm. the, second, the second clip here. Okay. Il m'a raconté que la Croix-Rouge avait visité cette prison quelques temps avant, avant qu'il arrive, et qu'ils avaient, les Ukrainiens, viré tous les politiques, les prisonniers politiques, enfermés dans la cave, et qu'ils avaient fait visiter la prison euh, à ces gens de la Croix-Rouge pour se dire, bah, vous voyez, tout est bien. Ils n'ont pas été très curieux, finalement. Non, pas très. Ouais. C'est ont... comme l'OSCE, en fait. Oui, et comme l'ONU. Parce qu'il faut, il faut, il faut dire quelque chose, c'est que tous les gens là dont je vous parle qui ont été échangés ont été débriefés par la Croix-Rouge. Et je vais même le dire, le nom pour la première fois, euh, vraiment. Cette dame, elle s'appelle Charline Franz. Elle est suissesse et elle, les elle sait tout ce que je sais, elle les a interrogés et ça c'est... J'ai essayé de l'interviewer, de l'approcher, elle n'a jamais voulu me parler. Elle est la Croix-Rouge. Oui, la Croix-Rouge sait et il y avait un monsieur de l'ONU, un Français. J'ai sa carte de visite quelque part, lui je ne vais pas dire son nom euh, par charité on va dire. Pourquoi Mais euh, j'ai donné cette affaire à un groupe d'Italiens et qui euh, se sont chargés... Euh... Qui travaillent là-dessus, d'accord. Ouais. Bon. Et ça, pour moi, c'était le truc le plus difficile à vivre. Entendre que je, je ne suis pas le premier mmh. européen. Un autre français, une suissesse, la Croix-Rouge sait et ne fait rien. Donc ça, c'était le pire à entendre. Parce qu'eux, ils n'ont euh, pas entendu 15 prisonniers comme moi. Parce qu'ils en ont échangé beaucoup plus. Moi, j'en ai approché qu'une quinzaine. Mais eux, ils en ont approché plusieurs centaines. Alors, je ne vous raconte pas euh, ce que ça... Euh, la masse euh, de documents, de témoignages, de tortures, de souffrances que ça fait. C'est énorme, parce qu'il y a eu plusieurs échanges. Quand je suis parti en, en juin-juillet juin, 2016, il venait d'avoir un autre échange auquel je n'ai pas, pas participé. Et ça continue après. I just want to uh, respond. I, I know you're going to say a bit more about that video, Vanessa, but uh, mm. the thing that comes into my mind is that we have British military advisors. We have the uh, special forces on the ground in Ukraine. There is no way that the British forces, the British military people on the ground in Ukraine cannot know this is going on. There's no question they know about it. Mm. Well, exactly, Brian, and you know, exactly as they know the atrocities that the terrorists were committing in Syria against um, civilians and prisoners of war. Um, I mean, he goes on to talk about, as I said, the vast numbers of people that were taken prisoner and tortured by these various NATO member state-backed brigades. He talks about the mass graves, he talks about the disappearances, Um, they, one particularly shocking uh, excerpt from the video, he talks about the fact that the bodies were taken to a car crusher um, after they had been executed and, or died through torture. They were crushed. Um, the, 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 I don't even know what to call them. The, the, the crushed body was then hidden down uh, mine shafts, etc. He speculates that that's because they had mobile crematoria, by the way, also to take away the bodies um, and, as I said, uh, mass graves. Um, so 
as, as he mentioned, you know, most of Mariupol was resistance against these fascist brigades, even if they didn't take up arms. Uh, they were Russian-speaking, and they certainly didn't support the, the rise of fascism enabled by um, the U.S. and U.K., etc., um, in Kiev. So I, I think, you know, I mean, really, I, I urge people to watch this and to listen to it. It's a very sober interview. Um, I believe that he's going to be uh, writing a, a major report on it. And I urge people also to contact Red Cross and the UN and demand to know why they haven't released any of this information. Contact uh, your uh, uh, MP, ask him why British forces are facilitating this kind of Gestapo torture of civilians in Ukraine. And why is it not being talked about? You know, we're, we're being waterboarded literally with information about Russian crimes that, that have very, very little evidence to support it. And yet these real crimes are effectively being disappeared. And the BBC is probably the most criminal of all those. If it has so many reporters on the ground, why is it incapable um, of reporting on these kind of atrocities? Yes. Uh, and, and just very briefly, Vanessa, uh, did the Red Cross play a similar role in Syria? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people assume that the Red Cross is neutral. In fact, the Red Cross is, of course, an international organization with local volunteers. But the head of the Red Cross, not the current one, and I've forgotten his name, um, who was here prior to, for example, the liberation of Eastern Ghouta, was definitely politicized, both in his responses, I met him, uh, and in his support of uh, US, UK narratives here in Syria. Yeah, for sure. The Red Cross is not. Also in Gaza, uh, Gazans will tell you many times that the Red Cross effectively um, supported Israeli operations against them and failed to come to their aid in Gaza. There, there are many stories about that. Yeah, okay. Okay, thank you very much for that. Now, I uh, just want to move on to NATO, actually. And uh, this morning on uh, Radio 4 on the Today programme, uh, there was a question asked of Ian Blackford, who is the uh, head of or the uh, head of the Scottish National Party in Parliament anyway. Um, so uh, let's just have a quick listen to what he had to say about NATO, because uh, I should say preempt this by saying the, that uh, the SNP changed their position on NATO about 10 years ago. Up until that point, uh, they were against uh, NATO. Now they're very much for it. But let's have a listen to what Blackford had to say. Look, we, we, as you rightly say, we changed our position 10 years ago. I'm pleased that we did, and I'm delighted that we see just over the course of the last few days that other European nations, Finland, Sweden, uh, are, are wishing to join the alliance as well. This is a defensive alliance. Let's just remind ourselves that this is a defensive organisation, not an offensive one. Well, actions speak louder than words, and I think when you look at the, the role that NATO is playing here and has played elsewhere, it's a defensive organisation that seeks to come to the aid of any of its members, of course, under Article 5 that are attacked. We absolutely fully subscribe to that. Uh, so nobody should be left in any doubt, according to Ian Blackford, MP, that uh, NATO is a defensive organisation. Uh, but unfortunately, far be it from me to say that Ian Blackford hasn't got a clue what he's talking about. But uh, on Tuesday, I was fortunate enough to speak to somebody who does have a clue what he was talking about, what he's talking about. And that's uh, Colonel Richard Black, 
so let's have a listen to what he had to say about NATO and whether it's defensive or not. I was I was part of NATO during the Cold War, and we had the Soviet Union face-to-face uh, -face with us on the border between East and West Germany. Uh, NATO went out of its way to make the point that they are a defensive alliance. Now, in 1991, the Berlin Wall dissolved and the Soviet Union itself dissolved. It just disintegrated. And uh, at the same time, the Soviet Union's defensive alliance, which was the Warsaw Pact, it dissolved. It went away. Um, one of the great tragedies of history is that NATO, which was a vast bureaucracy uh, of well-paid uh, people who were involved in, in defense things, the great tragedy of history is that it did not dissolve at that time and go away. Because the, the fading of the Soviet Union left us with a thousand mile buffer between Germany and Russia. And that diminished the risk of nuclear war enormously. However, what happened is you had all of these bureaucrats in, uh, in NATO and you had all of these Western military think tanks and so forth. And uh, the, the future of these bureaucrats depended on having an enemy. They had to have an enemy. And so they converted NATO, uh, not, not through a big declaration, but through their actions. It became a very offensive uh, organization, an offensive alliance. And it began to move relentlessly eastward. Uh, and it covered this entire thousand mile area until it ended up bumping up against the Russian borders. So that's pretty clear. Uh, in his view, NATO is not a defensive organization. It's an offensive organization. And I'll just remind everybody, of course, that following the most recent uh, strategic defense review in the UK, uh, Britain has uh, decided to put to the forefront its integrated operating concept, where it quite clearly states that that is an offensive strategy and not a defensive strategy. Um, so really calling it the Ministry of Defense at this point is no longer appropriate. NATO is not, not a defensive organization either. NATO putting the advisors into Ukraine, NATO countries putting the money and the weapons into Ukraine, that's an offensive operation. Yes. Um, so just if you haven't seen the, uh, the interview that I did on Tuesday with uh, Richard Black, um, if you head over to the UK column website, it's on the front page. Uh, you'll find it there. I urge everybody to watch it in full. He has a lot to say about what's going on in Ukraine and parallels with Syria as well. But uh, this morning on the Today programme, uh, it was not just uh, uh, it was not just uh, Ian Blackford that was being interviewed, but they also interviewed Ross Greer from the Green Party. And uh, well, I just thought it'd be because they are in coalition, the SNP and uh, the Greens in Scotland. So it might be worth to worthwhile just to see what. His view of NATO is. 
The Scottish Greens do believe really passionately in cooperation and that includes on issues of defence and security. So we do believe that we should be working with uh, countries that share our values, countries that share our strategic interests together in the interests of collective defence and security. Our specific objections to NATO are twofold. And the first is, it will come as no surprise to anyone, that the Greens object to NATO membership on the basis of it being a nuclear alliance. So most NATO member states are not themselves nuclear armed, but the basis of the alliance is its nuclear weapons and it's a first strike nuclear alliance. That's key to our objection. NATO reserves the right to launch the first strike in a nuclear war. We simply believe that's morally wrong. No one has the right to do that. That is an evil and a wicked thing to do. Okay, so that's evil and wicked, uh, the first strike capability. Uh, so that's uh, okay as far as NATO concerns is concerned. But what about uh, the Scottish Greens? And apologies for the typo on the graphic there. What about the Scottish Greens' uh, attitude towards arming Ukraine? We have absolutely no objections to arming the Ukrainians. Ukraine needs to win this war. The reality is there will be no negotiated settlement to the war in Ukraine without Ukrainian military victory forcing the right. Russians to the negotiating table. Okay. Now, I have to say, I find that really offensive, Brian, because uh, first of all, uh, the Russians have been at the negotiating table from the beginning, and it's the Ukrainians that are refusing to negotiate at the moment because Zelensky is receiving a telephone call from Boris Johnson almost on a daily basis at the moment uh, to make sure that those negotiations don't happen. Uh, uh, absolutely. I just want to add at this point, as I missed it from the earlier segment, that from the comments and analysis that I am seeing across the uh, internet, good quality analysis, uh, two things are coming to the fore now. One is discord between Zelensky and his top military advisors that uh, politics is being put above fighting the war. So the Ukrainians are saying their own troops are being undermined by Zelensky's political agenda, highly influenced by Boris Johnson and the other Western politicians and leaders who are telling him what to do. But something which I found extremely interesting is there's apparently discord, growing discord within the Ukrainian military uh, because the advice of Western military advisors, in particular the Americans and the British, their advice is not working. And yet the uh, onus is, well, if you want our weapons and our money, you've got to take our advice. Now, these are only, I'll call them rumours, but to me, there seems to be a lot of sense in this because particularly with UK, we do not have the military experience in fighting this kind of war. So the experience being put in is based, it's, it's, it's theatre, it's film. So the Ukrainians are being told to do things which we ourselves have no experience of doing. And that actually applies to the British and American within this theatre of war. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how things develop. Uh, now, uh, Mark Duggan has uh, pushed out a video uh, in the last day or two uh, about his visit to an Azov HQ in Mariupol. Um, I'm going to ask Vanessa to comment on this at the moment because Vanessa has some direct experience of carrying out very similar visits uh, to, um, uh, to uh, White Helmets establishments in, in Syria. So just before we uh, get Vanessa's comments, let's have a, a quick look at this uh, piece of video here. Uh, John Mark Dugan, uh, we're here at uh, an Azov headquarters near Mariupol, just west of Mariupol. 
Alright, we are back with my pal Nikita. You guys remember him from uh, the walk through uh, Port of uh, Mediopol. And uh, he just pointed out something very interesting yeah, to so me. This is the nightstand for one of Ukrainian soldiers. Mm -hmm. And this guy seemed to have hated everybody. So he's anti-Antifa, anti-Islam, four-pitter, so basically anti-Semitic, anti-Turkish, anti-whatever, uh, anti-rational, of course, somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, so basically hate, no mercy, basically hate everybody. Yeah. So, you know, we've been talking about uh, the, 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 the Nazi aspect of the Azov battalions and the other uh, extremists in, in Ukraine, um, and that's been criticized in many, from many circles, the BBC, many of the mainstream media don't like suggestions of uh, extremism in Ukraine. But uh, Vanessa, the, the thing that really struck me where was there was the parallels to what you were finding with the White Helmets in Syria, in the sense that when you went to their HQs, it was full of the regalia from ISIS. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't know how the BBC can um, can possibly flip its own narrative without any conscience. I mean, the BBC was reporting on on the rise of Nazism in Central Europe. For, for quite some time after 2014. Now, suddenly, that entire rise has just in, it's completely disappeared. Um, and of course, in the same way, while they were um, trumpeting the war on terror, of course, they were talking about the, the, the threat of terror globally. In Syria, of course, terror became moderate rebels. It was no longer ISIS or Al-Qaeda or various um, gangs and counter-gangs. It just became this sort of anodyne branding of um, what were terrorist factions. So it's, you know, we shouldn't really be surprised, but yeah, it's very reminiscent of, of and I'm sure we're going to see much more of these kind of revelations as uh, these H headquarters are um, thrown open to the public, so to speak. Yes, so uh, do go and watch that, uh, that video. It was extremely interesting in full. So uh, in the meantime, more sanctions. Uh, the UK very delighted that they're applying more sanctions this time to major Russian airlines. So they're saying that uh, yesterday uh, they announced that uh, new sanctions against Russian airline sector, uh, state-owned Aeroflot uh, and uh, various other airlines will now be unable to sell their unused lucrative landing slots at UK airports. And this is preventing Russia from cashing in on an estimated 50 million pounds. Uh, this news, they say, comes as the Transport Secretary Grant Shapps is taking up presidency of the International Transport Forum, uh, and he'll be using that position to call for a united response against Russia's intervention in Ukraine. Sorry, they call it an invasion. It's not. Uh, Russia's vital exports of energy, they say, are also shrinking, with crude oil exports down 30% in April and expected to fall further as sanctions bite. Now, I don't know whether that's true. I suspect it's not true. I suspect what he's talking about is uh, is exports to the West. Um, and uh, of course, they're excluding the uh, exports to China and other uh, countries in Asia. Um, but anyway, there we go. The sanctions continue. Let's see what Liz Truss had to say, because uh, she is lovely and we should have her on screen as much as possible. As long as uh, Putin continues his barbarous assault on Ukraine, we will continue to target the Russian economy. We've already closed our airspace to Russian airlines. 
Uh, today, we're making sure they can't cash in on lucrative landing slots at our airports. Every economic sanction reinforces our clear message to Putin. We will not stop until Ukraine prevails. Well, Try not to laugh, Brian. <laughs> well, of course, we shouldn't laugh, really, because it is so serious. So many people dying and suffering as a result of these idiots. But she believes she believes her own rhetoric. She believes the establishment rhetoric. And they believe at the moment that Russia is losing, whereas the evidence from on the ground seems to indicate something very different is happening. Uh, yes. Well, of course, she was uh, last week at the G7 foreign ministers meeting. And uh, well, this week it's Rishi and Rishi Sunak is at the G7 finance ministers meeting. Uh, and so he's now confirming once again that the UK stands ready to offer further economic support to Ukraine. So what are they talking about? Another uh, 950, sorry, another 50 million pounds guarantee, of course, it's loans really, uh, of further financing to Ukraine from the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development. Uh, this com comes on top of 950 million pounds in loan guarantees that the UK has already committed. Uh, and that makes up a total of uh, $3 billion worth of this type of financing. So that's uh, really pretty despicable because, of course, they're going to expect Ukraine to pay this back. And the question is, how are they going to do that with their economy, uh, their infrastructure well, completely decimated? Well, they're not. And therefore, the West will totally control. Well, of course, it's the international globalists will completely control and own the Ukraine. And this is where Zelensky is, is a comedian in the fullest sense, because he's simply no concept that he's being used as the puppet uh, for, the, for the powerful geopolitical interests in the West. But the money is always put in as a loan because then you control you control the receiver of those funds. Yes. Well, look, we'll come back to Ukraine in a second. But before we do, I just wanted to, to ask Vanessa for uh, thoughts on this, because uh, the Times of Israel here uh, has headline is Gantz in uh, Iran weeks from enough fissile material for bomb, adding 1000 centrifuges. So pushing the narrative that uh, Iran is ready uh, to uh, produce nuclear weapons. Uh, Gantz meets uh, U.S. National Security Chief for talks on Iran and Israel's security. Another article from The Times in the last couple of days. Uh, and then I wanted to highlight this as well from the Defense Post. Israel to hold military exercise uh, simulating large-scale attack on Iran. Uh, this this is brilliant timing, isn't it? Brilliant timing. Yeah. So, so, Vanessa, what is going on here? Well, I mean, Israel Israel has been ramping up the provocations for some time. I mean, uh, most people will be completely unaware, but last week uh, it targeted um, an area called Masyaf to the northwest of Damascus, killing five senior military officers in a vehicle that used around 20 missiles. Of course, not all of them hit, but they fired 20 missiles at these uh, military uh, officers, all of whom were killed. Seven civilians were also injured, including a baby girl. I think she was around three years old. Um, and for some time, Israel has been targeting um, Syrian, not Iranian, although they, they would also be violating international law if they target Iranian military installations here. But they've been targeting our um, air defense bases, our uh, early warning systems, our runways, our air bases, etc. Um, of course, Latakia port and so on for, for really quite a long time, but the attacks are intensifying now. You then also have uh, Hezbollah's success in the elections in Lebanon, uh, which is going to be another thorn in the side of the Zionist entity. 
but also in the side of British intelligence who were doing their utmost through, uh, we've talked about their various intelligence operations to try and derail Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, President Assad visited Tehran very recently, uh, last week, I believe. And it is believed here, much of the meeting w was closed session and they didn't uh, have a press conference, but it's believed that they were very likely to be uh, discussing strategy um, on the basis that, that they know Israel is pushing uh, for some kind of conflict or escalation. And of course, you know, the war is not going to be against Iran per se. It will be against Iran in the Middle East. So in Syria, in Iraq, that, that's my speculation on this. They're, they're not stupid enough. And, and certainly the U.S. is not going to support them in a war against Iran because the U.S., even for the U.S., it is fairly uh, thinly spread right now. And plus, it is still trying to maintain the, the nuclear deal because um, if, for example, it, it completely burns its bridges with Russia, then potent, there is potential that it will rely even upon Iran as it's done a sort of U-turn and gone back to Venezuela for oil supply. Yes. So, uh, I mean, is Iran, how concerned is Iran at, at Israel running this latest military exercise? And maybe but maybe these types of military exercises with Iran as the target uh, are more common than, than we see in the press? Yeah, I mean, I would have to check on that. I, I, I would go out on a limb and say, I doubt Iran is expecting a direct attack. Of course, you could still have, you know, the, the what I call the, the kind of isolated intelligence attacks against um, various technical and research and engineering installations in Iran, as we've seen before, or assassinations um, of leading scientists and engineers, as we've seen before, or potentially some kind of false flag to take us to war, you know, the downing of a passenger airliner, for example, um, but I would guess that Iran is expecting at least the first tranche of escalation to be against so-called Iranian installations and military um, in Syria and in Iraq. I, I would guess that this is what we're expecting. Here, we're hearing that in June, uh, we're being given June as a possible start date for some kind of escalation. Yeah, okay. Thank you for that. I'll just add mm -hmm. into that that I'm sure one of the big things that is causing a huge problem at the moment is, is, is of course, Russia has demonstrated the power of its hypersonic missiles. And it's a fact that the US carriers are vulnerable to those missiles. And this is why I believe that at the moment, despite all the wars going on, the war in Ukraine, we're not hearing anything about American battle groups. And this is because at the moment, the Americans haven't got an answer to the weapons that the Russians hold. Vanessa. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. A lot of people, I'm sure, even in the chat are saying, well, what's happened to Russian S-300s? Look, you know, this isn't, I'm, I'm not repeating information that I've been given, but a lot of people have said to me, look, we're not going to use the S-300s until there is escalation, because if we use them prior to that, there is an opportunity for Israel to know their positioning, to know how many we have. We can manage with the S-300s, the, the, the various um, air defense units that they have and that they are repairing each time um, until there is a real need to use the S-300s in anger. Yes, okay, thank you. 
Right, well, let's just uh, drive things home with how bad the BBC really is. This little clip, or this is part of a clip that was sent to me this morning. It's an interview with the BBC's very own Mariana Spring, who of course is an expert, on, apparently, on misinformation. Um, just have a look at how this young lady performs. Now, Mariana, your, your reward for putting up with me and Chris for this whole 30 minutes, it may have felt longer to you than that, I don't know, is you get to now plug your new podcast series. Go! I do. Uh, it's called The War on Truth. Um, it's all about people caught up in the information war uh, that's raging around Ukraine. Um, and each episode I speak to one person who's life has been affected by this, um, who's become tangled up in the propaganda battle and disinformation tactics. And a weird irony, one of the most kind of powerful episodes is someone else called Mariana. I know, which has been quite um, a, a really harrowing story to investigate, but also quite bizarre because I don't meet many other Marianas. Uh, Marianas felt the same way as well. Um, and he's not much older than me. Um, and Mariana is the other Mariana is the woman who was pictured outside that maternity hospital in Mariupol that got bombed. And she was pictured standing outside with a duvet over her. It's become one of the most iconic images of the war. But almost straight after that image was everywhere, uh, she was accused by Russian officials, by state television, um, on Telegram of, of acting, they said. He's a stage. She was posing as another woman, a woman who actually died and lost her baby. Um, and I spent weeks trying to track down Mariana because I wanted to hear what it felt like to be caught up in all this. Um, I've spoken to her best friends in Ukraine, in Russia, one who genuinely believed she was acting. Right. Um, and then finally, I spoke to her. And what she described to me was, you know, what it's like to be, and she's had, had her baby, which is really good news. Um, but what it's like to be, you know, a first time mum, suddenly at the heart of this international propaganda disinformation war and, and a target of a vicious campaign by Russian officials. And she actually described, we started off by talking about um, the attack and what it was like. And then she went on to explain how, you know, every time she talks, she feels like her words are twisted. Mm. And um, she was speaking to me in quite complicated circumstances. She'd actually, um, she, she's been evacuated to the Donbass region where she grew up. Um, and that means that um, and that's, that's being controlled by Russian backed mm. separatists. And there was a pro-Russian separatist blogger who um, set up the interview, who's interviewed her before, who, right. was, who was there in the room. Um, and so we had to, you know, ask a lot of questions of her and her friends and family to make sure we felt she was safe. Okay. Um, and we have to kind of remember that, that she might not be able to say exactly what she thinks because she needs to keep herself safe or just because she might, you know, it might be an indication of quite complex views. So if, if I'm kind to Mariana, I'm going to say that essentially she's unbelievably naive. She's a child, but I actually think she knows a lot more about uh, what she's doing. But can we take, Vanessa, I'm looking at you and your response, but can we seriously take this young lady seriously that she is able to tell us about fake news, disinformation, oh. misinformation? Will Mariana Spring be going to investigate the torture that you've uh, described? No, I mean, if she's in Mariupol, why isn't she? I mean, you know, that, that's the whole well, point, well, isn't it? I mean, they avoid these stories like the plague. And the fact is that this girl, I've seen an interview with this girl, I can't remember on which channel, where she made the decision to go back to, to Donbass because it's her, it's where she was born, it's where she's from. And she's perfectly happy to be back there. So, you know, even in this interview, Spring is, is spinning it out of control. It's just unbelievable. 
And what I wanted to mention, um, Greg Simons, an academic uh, professor friend of mine, based in, for the time being, in, in well, actually, I won't say where he's based, <laughs> but um, he, he was contacted by the BBC um, regarding, I think it's a new series about to be produced by Chloe Hadjimatiu about misinformation on Ukraine. Of course, for the viewers, Chloe Hadjimatiu is the one that ran effectively a hate campaign against myself and anyone that was exposing um, the media complex lies and, and British regime lies in Syria um, is now getting involved, getting her teeth into the Ukraine misinformation. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would love, why doesn't Mariana Spring have me on to talk about BBC disinformation and how the, the British state and the BBC have targeted me for probably more than six years? Um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely, it, I, I, I'm speechless. <laughs> I can't find the words to describe it. Total so, hypocrisy. Well, that's brilliant. So there's a challenge to Mariana Spring. Uh, maybe maybe people yeah. should encourage that to happen. Uh, by all means. Well, wouldn't it be fascinating to be, be able to sit <laughs> down and interview her? I don't think that's going to happen, though. I think she'll run away. Uh, let's just, uh, we'll only just show a little bit of this, but uh, we just wanted to remind people that, of course, the Russians a little while ago were talking very seriously about what they'd found in relation to biolabs. Um, in uh, Ukraine, they put up a great deal of information. The statements they made about it were very formal. Uh, we haven't seen any proper investigation into this. Do I believe everything the Russians say? No. Do I believe there's substance to what they're saying? Absolutely. Let's just have a look at part of the formal Russian statement. Благодаря специальной военной операции российских войск удалось получить дополнительную информацию о военно-биологической деятельности США на территории Украины, подтверждающей многочисленные нарушения конвенции запрещения биологического оружия. Пользуясь существующими пробелами в международном законодательстве и отсутствием четкого механизма проверки, американская администрация последовательно наращивает свой военно-биологический потенциал в различных регионах мира. Российская Федерация постоянно предпринимает усилия по созданию механизма проверки соблюдения КБТО. Однако указанная инициатива последовательно блокируется коллективным Западом во главе с США с 2001 года. Существующий механизм Генерального секретаря ООН по расследованию предполагаемого применения биологического и токсинного оружия, а также Женевский протокол 1925 года о запрещении применения удушающих, ядовитых и других подобных газов, и бактериологических средств в ходе войн и военных конфликтов не охватывают вопросы проверки биологической деятельности государств-участников. Организация по запрещению химического оружия, расположена в ГААГе, также не обладает такими полномочиями. Ранее мы проводили схему координации деятельности биологических лабораторий и научно-исследовательских институтов Украины со стороны США. Одним из его элементов является Украинский научно-технологический центр УНТЦ. На первый взгляд, не публичная организация, не имеющая ничего общего с Пентагоном. Министерство обороны России удалось раскрыть ее роль в военно-биологической деятельности США на территории Украины. Well, there was a lot of documentation put up. Obviously, what you saw on screen there was all in, in uh, Russian, but there was a lot of documentation put out to support these statements uh, in English. And you can find those still if you have a look online. But of course, where did he start off with the betrayal of agreements mm. uh, that... Uh, 
uh, uh, the consensus to control bio biological weapons. Uh, those agreements had simply been rubbished by particularly the US and the West. Uh, and now we're asking questions about what laboratories are doing inside Ukraine with connections to, of course, US and UK big pharma, but also with the military. Will the BBC be doing a proper investigation of these concerns? I don't think so. Well, let's just uh, have a look at this little headline, which I saw a few days ago. And as always, I decided just to have a look at who was who. So this is the BBC. Uh, Ukraine conflict, Russian chemical attack claim fact check. Now, this wasn't to do with biological weapons or anything, well, chemical weapons. This was to do with an explosion which had a big orange tinge, and that was a result of somebody bombing a facility that had a very uh, large deposit of ammonium nitrate. If we just bring that, that uh, slide back on screen, uh, the key thing to note is that the two journalists here, Alastair Coleman and Kayleen Devlin, a part of BBC monitoring, and of course, BBC monitoring paid for uh, partly by the British government in order to walk, work alongside UK intelligence services. So uh, this, is, this was an interesting little article, but I decided to look at this young lady because to me, she seems a little bit similar to uh, Mariana Spring. I don't know what it is about them, very young, but naive pictures, I think. Uh, so it says senior journalists, anti-disinfo unit at BBC Monitoring, JTS Illumini. And uh, here we've got the J. Schofield Trust Fellow. And I was fascinated by that. So I decided to go and have a little look at what that was. Her interests are the climate, of course, climate change. You've got to be interested in, in the agenda. But let's have a look at the Schofield Trust. And I'm going to say straight away, I'm not saying these people are doing anything wrong, but let's uh, report a few things and see what our audience thinks. So here they are to have UK newsrooms as diverse as the people they serve. Now, I'm going to say straight away we're into a political agenda. But at the bottom of the screen, it says our mission, we help aspiring and early career journalists access and navigate the profession by providing world class mentoring and training. So this is a grooming organization, isn't it? It's a selecting and training, mentoring. It's a grooming organization. Now, the background, I think, is uh, we should respect. And, and it came about as a result of BBC reporter John Schofield uh, from World Tonight, who was killed in Croatia on the 9th of August. Uh, was 1995, was that right? Was that the report? So I'm sorry, I can't confirm the exact date on that. But the background to this organisation was that he died. His family thought it would be a good idea to set something up in his name. And this is the little organisation that materialised. So as always, go and have a look at the staff. And of course, you'll find many, I'm going to call them powerful people in the media sense with backgrounds in the BBC. Um, here's a few more. Jenny Clark, Louise Hastings, Cyber Malik. Um, so most most of them have worked at the BBC at some stage or other, which I suppose we, we could say makes sense. Emma Maxwell, Nick Pollard and Julie Randalls. Now, I was reading uh, the CV here for Nick Pollard and I got very interested very quickly because let's have a look at this one. Nick has spent 50 years working in the media industry. He is a broadcast and media consultant executive 
currently working with CGTN, China Global Television Network. Well, this was a little bit of a problem for me because I've remembered articles that the BBC has been writing, and this is one from the 12th of March, 2021, the disinformation tactics used by China. So those nasty Chinese have been using disinformation, but you don't have to go far into the article. Sorry, just uh, point out, this is also a BBC monitoring article. You don't have to go far into it before you see this. Increasing anti-BBC coverage. There's been almost daily anti-BBC articles in the Chinese state media since mid-February. It follows a decision by the UK broadcasting regulator Ofcom to revoke the license for China's state-run overseas broadcaster CGTN. So we seem to be in the strange position where BBC journalists are being groomed by people who are working with organisations that have been banned because they're producing misinformation. Yes. Or am I confused here, Mike? Well, no, the question is, what is, what is his role? Why has he been pushed over to CGTN? And uh, what is he doing over there would be a question that we need to answer. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to say here and now, if we could have some help either from the BBC themselves or our audience as to how this little circle works, we'd be very interested to know. Uh, Vanessa. Well, you know, as soon as I see the BBC's hand in anything, unfortunately, now I'm rather jaded. So I tend to be on, on Mike's side on this and think that he's up to no good, whatever he's doing there. So it would be worth investigating. Hopefully someone can enlighten us. Yeah. I, I don't I don't I don't consider anything that comes from the BBC as enlightenment, by the way. So I think we, we might. We, well, certainly, Vanessa. We, we might get a standard rebuttal from the BBC, but I think, you know, I think it would be very interesting to follow that up, actually. Uh, well, we, we will do some more work on it. Possibly I, I'll ask the organisation a question and see what, they, what answer they come back with. I think that would be very productive. But if we, we really want to have a look at how it should be done, we, we've got a little clip from CNN here. And I will give a health warning because it does include... Uh, our very own Tony Blair. So let's have a look at what Tony had to say. I'm not sure when this was filmed, unfortunately, uh, but it doesn't matter because you'll see by the substance. Here we go. Vladimir Putin's first visit to the West after he was elected president of Russia landed him in London in April 2000. There he was welcomed to 10 Downing Street by the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Blair met with Putin many, many more times. We are back here in London with Tony Blair. Um, so it's a bit, the aging process is a little <laughs> bit visible from those old pictures. But anyway, not not, not of Putin, by the way, more of you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, wh what did you t tell us? You know, everyone is wondering about this question. He seemed rational, incremental, calculating, logical. He now seems emotional, um, you know, angry. Uh, what is your sense of the trajectory? So the, the first Putin I met was Western-facing, anxious to have a good relationship with the West. He used to insist that we met in St. Petersburg because it's the Western-facing great city of Russia. Then I think he, he found the challenges of reform and change in Russia too great, and he decided to consolidate power in a more autocratic way and then become a Russian nationalist. And so the second incarnation of Putin, if you like, was... was cold and calculating and 
brutal, but still, I would say, entirely rational within his own terms. The anxiety I think everyone has is that he's now completely detached from reality, um, surrounded by people who won't tell him the truth. And this is why this I mean, incredible miscalculation, right. I mean, leave aside the, the, the wickedness of it. I mean, the miscalculation strategically and in every possible way has been enormous. I mean, how he could ever have thought, anyone who knows Ukraine, and we both know Ukraine, I mean, anyone who knows it knows that there was never any question of Ukrainians agreeing to be subjugated to, to Russia in this way. So I think that's, that's the worry. The trajectory has been away from a reforming Western-oriented leader who could have allowed Russia to become part of the West. I mean, people even used to talk in the old days. I'm talking those, those times when I was there then. People were even talking about, could Russia become a member of the European That's Union? That's right. Is, was there a way Russia could be accommodated literally within the structures of NATO? And it's very important people remember this because th this myth that Putin perpetrates, that we were somehow always trying to push him and humiliate Russia. Russia's problem is not the result of our humiliation of Russia. It's as a result of bad government in Russia. Well, isn't that utterly obscene and disgusting? The, the man who cr created the deaths of ultimately hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people on lies of weapons of mass destruction, lecturing the world uh, on what Putin is. Uh, Vanessa, you, you were smiling, but I know you also believe this is very serious stuff. Uh, Tony I, Blair I mean... is, is beyond comment, isn't he? He's demonic. I mean, when you look at him, I mean, he is the embodiment of evil. And listen to how he's talking. He's surrounded by people that don't tell him the truth. Well, hello, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, you know, he's talking about wickedness. He's talking, he's talking about everything that he is guilty of with this hideous mask. I mean, I don't know. We, we really, the, the lunatics are in charge of the asylum. Yes. Well, it's interesting you make this point because uh, this kind of cognitive dissonance that, that, is, that exists also existed in George W. Bush. And I'm sure lots oh, of people have seen this video, but we're going to end with, uh, with the video of George W. Bush. Uh, some people saying a Freudian slip. In contrast, Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> 75. Uh, Here's well, I'm not certain he was any better when he was 55, Vanessa. Oh, God, why didn't someone throw a shoe at him instead of laughing? I mean, honestly, again, you know, this is someone who is responsible for the genocide of Iraqis, the, the, the killing of half a million children, infanticide, both of them, Blair and Bush. And, and, you know, I, I mean, how these people are still given a podium and a platform and still have an audience is a reflection on not Our quite failings. sure it's, what, yeah. It's, 
It's yeah. a reflection on our own failings yeah. because we in the West, whether we're in UK or the, the USA or Germany or the European Union, we allow these people to do say and do what they do. Well, that's uh, it, I think. I think we'd better stop there because uh, you can't do any more the, after those two at work. But uh, maybe we could just comment, how, how can Putin possibly form a defence and a and a foreign policy when people like Tony Blair and um, George, Bush. George Bush are in uh, are in power. We can't possibly know what's in their minds. Well, we'll leave our audience there. Vanessa, thank you very much for joining us. I uh, would just say a pretty full UK column news today on some very serious subjects. We always suggest people take time out to do the nice things that they can still do in this world. It's good to uplift spirits. But please do share our material as widely as possible because the whole aim is to get the truth and the facts out. So we'll say to our audience today, wherever you are in the world, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we will be back on Monday. No extra today. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.